Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Lauren Cunningham, the Keith Stanga Professor of Accounting at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and the Director of Research for the C. Warren Neal Corporate Governance Center. We're also joined by Sarah Stein, Associate Professor and the Deloitte Foundation Faculty Fellow in the Department of Accounting and Information Systems at Virginia Tech. Professor Cunningham and Professor Stein are two of the co-authors of a new report entitled Audit Committee, The Kitchen Sink of the Board. The report summarizes the results of a research study capturing 2,200 minutes of interviews with audit committee chairs or members, members of the investment community, and those charged with preparing proxy disclosures. The report will be published by the Center for Audit Quality. Welcome, Professor Cunningham and Professor Stein. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. We also wanted to acknowledge our two other co-authors on this report, Kim Walker and Carnesha Wolf, both at Virginia Tech. So, Lauren, if you'll kick us off, in your interviews, you found that 40% of audit committee participants view the audit committee as the kitchen sink of the corporate board. So what does that mean? And what are some of the consequences to investors, both good and bad, of having a kitchen sink audit committee? Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about the evolution of audit committees dating back to the 1930s, they started with a primary focus on financial statements and external auditor oversight. And then by the 1970s, many audit committees were taking on additional responsibilities related to internal controls, internal auditors, fraud prevention and detection, and compliance with laws and regulations. And then fast forward again, by the early 2000s, that's when we started to see them taking on this primary or shared oversight related to enterprise risk management, or uh, ERM. And then in the last five to 10 years, We've been hearing an increasing number of audit committees taking on either a shared or primary oversight related to cybersecurity and data privacy and now ESG disclosures. And so in our interviews, we wanted to learn more about this evolving set of responsibilities. So we asked audit committee members to talk about the extent to which they're taking on responsibilities related to those newer topics, cybersecurity, ERM, and ESG. And for 40% of participants, when they talk about why those expanded oversight roles were added to the audit committee's workload, they use these terms like, well, the audit committee is a catch-all committee or the audit committee is the kitchen sink of the board. And sometimes they weren't necessarily sure if the audit committee was the best place for that risk oversight to reside. But they felt like it got assigned to them because their board viewed the audit committee as this catch-all or kitchen sink committee. And so, again, we dig further, you know, why is that? And they'd say, well, it didn't fit neatly into the compensation committee or it didn't fit neatly into the nominating and governance committee. And so somehow for these boards, the audit committee became this committee taking on a wider and wider net of risks that were no longer that narrowly defined financial reporting risk. And so when we asked audit committees like, okay, so why do you think that is? Why is it that boards think of the audit committee as a kitchen sink? Well, many of them point to how these topics, enterprise risk management, cyber, ESG disclosures, they kind of all tie back to some element of financial reporting. And that might make sense because financial reporting does capture the economic transactions of a company. 
They also see how those types of risks are similar to overseeing things like a company's internal control effectiveness or fraud prevention or compliance with regulations. So they feel like this might be related to something they're already doing. And so you asked, when would this be a good thing? When would it be a good thing to think of the audit committee as a kitchen sink? Well, if you look at the qualifications of board members, often audit committee members are some of the most qualified members as it relates to these highly technical skill sets. Many are former audit partners or finance executives, so they have experience with risk management. They're also very familiar with controls and company operations, and they're used to thinking about the types of disclosures that investors want to see. But I want to say this could be bad as well. So if the audit committee doesn't buy in on why they are the ones assigned to oversee these particular risks, or if they feel like their workload is uneven compared to the other committees, they might find themselves just checking the box to push through their meeting agendas. So nearly unanimously, our interviewees feel like they already have a huge workload and these additional responsibilities somehow still have to get done. And so our report goes on to talk about some of the leading practices and how they are managing that evolving workload. So let me turn to you, Sarah. Based on your interviews, what audit committee disclosures would investors find most useful? Great question, Jeff. So in our report, we highlight five ways that committees can polish their audit committee-related disclosures in the proxy filing. To make sure we're all on the same page, when we say audit committee-related disclosures, we're talking about any part of the proxy that references the audit committee. So this could be the individual director profile information, information related to audit committee responsibilities and allocation of risk oversight, the audit committee report itself, or information related to external auditor oversight that's oftentimes outside the audit committee report. To answer your question then, let's start really basic, which unfortunately not all companies are doing in their disclosures. Investors want to know, how is the board allocating risk oversight responsibilities to each of the committees? Companies can make this clear in their proxy disclosures by using graphics and tables. Importantly, though, investors really don't want to have to pull committee charters from the website. They'd rather have this information in one clear, detailed disclosure in the proxy. In our interviews with audit committee members, they admit that they're often kind of slow to update their disclosures when their oversight responsibilities evolve. In some cases, an audit committee may start taking on oversight responsibility for an area such as cyber or more recently ESG disclosures, but investors won't actually learn about that for at least a couple more years. Ultimately, it's important for investors to receive timely information about risk oversight. Next, investors told us that they want to see even more detail about the qualifications of the audit committee. Why are these individuals the right audit committee members for this specific company given these specific risks? They want to be able to map the skills of the audit committee members with the types of risks the audit committee is responsible for overseeing. Many companies are now making skill set matrices, and this is a really great start. Companies could consider also including a separate section where they help the reader map those director skills with the risks overseen by each committee. Here in our report, we highlight the Honeywell proxy. This isn't exactly on point, but it does provide an interesting example of the use of graphics to make it clear whether the director has technical expertise, managerial expertise, or working knowledge of specific skills, just to elaborate more on the depth of knowledge in a particular area. Third, investors want to see that directors are being proactive in continuing their education to stay current with evolving business risks. Consider, for example, J.P. Morgan that recently outlined specific topics of director continuing education in their proxy, or Tech Resources, which is a Canadian firm that goes on to also describe which specific directors received which specific type of training. 
The tech resources disclosure also lists out the presenter so investors can see when the continuing education is presented by management versus when it's presented by external specialists. Fourth, investors want to see the audit committee tell their story on how they addressed key risks. Here we point to Corn Ferry as an example in our report. Corn Ferry's proxy provides a Q&A section with each committee chair so that investors can see examples of key risks for that specific year and how the committee responded. It's interesting to really note that in this specific Q&A disclosure, it varies by year, so readers know it's not a static boilerplate disclosure. Finally, investors want to see audit committees talk about more than just external auditor oversight. Currently, audit committee disclosures are really heavy on describing auditor oversight, and that is important. It's a big part of their job. And we're all audit professors, and we're training the next generation of auditors, so we know it's important. But as Lauren described previously, we also know that audit committees are taking on a wider set of responsibilities. And with that, their proxy disclosures need to be covering all of the risks, not just external auditor oversight. So that really covers the five areas in audit committee disclosures that investors would find most useful. Our report includes additional details and examples that may provide inspiration to companies looking to improve their disclosures. So Sarah, why aren't more companies already making these disclosures that you just described? Are there any opportunities for the Securities Exchange Commission to improve audit committee disclosures? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Jeff, and we're hoping that our research will shed some light on this issue. First, let me clarify that in the examples that I gave previously, we found those through our own review of proxy disclosures. I just don't want your audience members to think that those are specific companies that participated in our study. Back to your question, though, our analysis suggests one major root cause for why companies aren't disclosing more about audit committee oversight. They're just not hearing a demand for more information from investors. So unanimously, our audit committee participants said that they have never received a question about their audit committee oversight disclosures. Some of them have received a question here and there about auditor retention, but not about information in the proxy being inadequate. The investor participants in our study kind of admit that they're using their engagement opportunities on other topics like compensation or ESG. So then what happens in this scenario? Well, audit committees assume that investors are happy as is. And investors wonder why companies are expanding their proxy disclosures in other areas, but are not expanding their audit committee related disclosures. So this is really great that you invited us for this podcast because our analysis suggests that investors are the solution to this problem. If you as an investor are not happy with a company's proxy disclosures, then the company needs to hear from you. We recommend using time and engagement opportunities to ask questions and then update your voting policies to consider the additional information that you want. If boards are seeing that voting policies are taking into consideration their expanded set of responsibilities, for this additional information, then we expect they'll expand their disclosures. And ultimately, if you aren't satisfied with what you read in the disclosures, let's say you don't think the audit committee skill sets align with the risks, or you don't think the audit committee is detailed enough in how it's addressing the risks, then vote against the audit committee. That's the clearest communication possible. To the last part of your question, though, we hesitate to recommend specific SEC intervention here because the worry is that it just becomes a new cookie cutter disclosure that investors are yet again left in the dark because many audit committee disclosures look the same. There are definitely opportunities, as we've kind of highlighted previously, for more systematic disclosures, but companies also need to feel encouraged to tell their story in a way that is relevant for the company. 
So Lauren, back to you. Your paper discusses some leading practices in how audit committees can share oversight responsibilities with other board committees to help allocate the workload across committees. Can you discuss some of those leading practices and how they might benefit or harm investors? Absolutely, Jeff. Many of the risks that we've been talking about today, cybersecurity, enterprise risk management, ESG, they will often need attention from more than one committee because these are enterprise-wide risks affecting many aspects of the business. And so they need multiple perspectives and multiple types of expertise from within the board. The leading practices we heard all relate back to one thing, clear communication across committees. Now, how you achieve that clear communication probably depends on the culture of the board and the types of directors chairing each of the committees. Some audit committee participants said that they are comfortable talking with other committee chairs on their own. Others just have a standing invitation that any board member is allowed to attend any committee meeting at any time. Others prefer to have a formal meeting of two or more committees to discuss specific risks. But a particularly interesting idea was raised by two different participants. In each of their companies, they put enterprise risk management with the nominating and governance committee. And then that non-gov committee is comprised of the chairs of each of the other committees. This allows the non-gov committee to make decisions about how to allocate detailed oversight across the board, and it allows them to monitor workload, and so they can make sure that there's fair division of work across committees. I think in all of these cases, investors benefit, because the board is making sure that all risks are appropriately addressed, and nothing is falling between the cracks. So following up on that, Lauren, earlier you said that your report described some leading practices as to how audit committees can manage their evolving workloads. Can you give us a preview of that? Yeah, thanks. Uh, in the report, we break that down into four areas, managing skill sets, managing time, managing the relationship with management, and managing responsibilities shared with other committees. We were just talking about that last category, managing responsibilities shared with other committees, but I'll give a preview of the first two. So under managing skill sets, this could mean taking a look at the oversight responsibilities that are given to the audit committee and making sure that there are sufficient skill sets within the committee to oversee those risks. That could be achieved through committee refreshment or through continuing education for directors. That could also involve having the committee engage a specialist to assist them. The second category, managing time, can mean critically evaluating what types of oversight responsibilities are given to the audit committee in the first place. Or it could mean making the best use of time given the oversight responsibilities assigned. As for the former, taking a critical look at assignments in the first place, nearly one-third of our participants recall thinking about where to assign a specific responsibility, and they purposely chose not to assign it to the audit committee. And the reason was because they were concerned about the workload that was already placed on that audit committee. In another case, nearly one quarter of our participants recall a time where they actively pushed back on the board. So imagine a board saying, wow, you know, they're having a discussion. We think this is a great area for the audit committee. The audit committee chair pushed back on the board because they believed it was something that needed that broader strategic discussion at a board level. So they did not think it'd be appropriate to reside within the audit committee. So as for the latter, managing what you've already got, our participants discussed the importance of a well-planned agenda. They talk about planning ahead to map out key risks over the course of the year. And they talk about having a chance to deep dive on each of those topics. So you can spread it out over the course of the year so that each meeting, you're deep diving on one specific topic. 
They also talk about the importance of working with management on the types of materials given ahead of time. They don't want to use meeting time to recap what was already provided. Instead, they want to use meeting time for discussion and analysis. Many audit committees also recount needing to tap into their personal time to get through the growing volumes of information they're reading ahead of time. And many are willing to stay in meetings longer than planned or add unscheduled meetings to ensure topics get enough attention. But that's just a preview of what we talk about in the report. I hope that listeners head to the CAQ website and look for the report, Audit Committee, the Kitchen Sink of the Board. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank our special guests, Lauren Cunningham, the Keith Stanga Professor of Accounting at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and the Director of Research for the C. Warren Neal Corporate Governance Center, and Sarah Stein, Associate Professor and the Deloitte Foundation Faculty Fellow in the Department of Accounting and Information System at Virginia Tech. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at CII.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.